from Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped to serve in Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let us pray. Oh, Father, indeed, I pray that our soul, like Mary, would truly magnify you, O Lord. I pray from the depth of our soul that indeed we would rejoice in God our Savior. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. What, what a great privilege it is to be redeemed from all our sin and all our transgressions and to truly be among the blessed. 
the blessed one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the blessed one whose the Lord doesn't count iniquity. I pray, Father, that that blessing would be among us all in truth, in reality. And may our recognition of it cause us to respond in great joy. I pray that we would not be ashamed to come to you in any time of weakness so that we indeed might find strength in any time of sin that we might find atonement for our sin through our high priest Jesus Christ who lives forever who intercedes forever and ever I pray that we would acknowledge and confess our sins to you and recognize that you're faithful and just to forgive us all our sin and cleanse us from all our iniquity. I pray, Father, that you would bless our time together as we have confessed our sin and we have gathered then to hear your word as it's proclaimed in the many ways in which it is proclaimed, whether it's the shouting for joy in the songs that we sing or the hearing of your word as it's read or explained in every aspect of it, in our various ways in which we participate, I pray that you will receive our thanksgiving to you. I pray for your blessings upon our time here. May we all encourage one another to love and good works. I pray that Christ would be first and foremost in our lives. I pray for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Grant us great joy and praise this day because of Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day. Let's stand and take our hymn books and turn to number 594. We'll sing Faith of Our Fathers. Our fathers trusted in you and you rescued them. Psalm 22 4. 594.
373. 373, rise up, O men of God. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, be brave and strong. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. fathers here, and I hope many of you have great celebrations planned today, and I hope you enjoy them. In the church, we uh, use this time, at least I have since I've been here, to um, say a blessing to those that are fathers, those that will be fathers, uh, those that are functioning in roles of fathers in various ways in which they may interact with others that God has brought them into their life, and that those that are on the precipice of it to basically say a blessing uh, of prayer for you and a word of admonition. Now, I think we have some young men to hand out some bookmarks for us on the names of God. I thought this would just be a token to remember this blessing and prayer today, and so I'm going to pray specifically and charge um, you men beginning at age 16 and up. So this doesn't mean that you have a uh, child that you, you're um, taking care of immediately. This just means that you're a man uh, and function in a role as a father within the church and within our culture. So if you're 16 years of age and you're a male, um, I, sorry that made me smile a little bit because we have a, trouble in our culture determining what is a woman, so I thought maybe they might have trouble what is a man, but hopefully no one has any doubt here. If you're a man, 16 years of age and older, go ahead and stand, and I have these young men to hand you this momentum why I give this charge and then pray this blessing for you. In the worship folder, and uh, you guys go ahead and hand those out, if you will. In this worship folder, there is a definition of masculinity. Um, 
And so that uh, we would be clear about that, at least within the church. And I like this phraseology. It, it, um, it's, it simply reads, at the heart of mature masculinity, being it's a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. This is what we're emphasizing. Uh, three things, and Andy handed out a little book to write notes down, and this would be perhaps something you might want to write down. It, it is the responsibility to lead. It is the responsibility to provide for, and it is the responsibility to protect. And in, in specific detail, women. They need godly leadership. They need to be provided for spiritually and physically, as well as protected. And man, we need to rise up and do those things. And I want to challenge you in that respect to, to engage uh, in, in those various ways. I'm saddened in the culture that we have right now that is declining significantly. We don't know what a man is anymore. Well, three concepts, that would be a man. This leadership is sacrificial. This leadership is hard. It's absolutely important. And this next generation to come along, men, we need to teach them those three concepts so that they will do that, so that they will rise up as men, get married, and have children and raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and do so by leading them to God and do so by providing for them and do so by protecting them. This text that I've quoted here from 2 Timothy chapter 2, it calls us as we grow together to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul would tell his protege, Timothy, Paul functioned as a father to Timothy, to this next generation. And he said, well, what you have heard from me among many witnesses, you entrust these to faithful men who are able to teach others also. And I just want to stop here and say, um, ever since I've been here, this church has been blessed by faithful men. I can't tell you what a great joy it is to know you, to meet you, to see you, to know what you're doing in your attempt to follow Christ and lead others. Many churches struggle to have men in their church. The women come, but the men don't. And that hasn't been a problem here. It's been men like you who have been faithful, standing by, sacrificial and serving, and then are teaching the next generations. And I look forward to that, and that's going to be our prayer of blessing, that that will continue. It is not characteristic of many places this day, but it is a great joy. And it's, I thought about this even this day. Each one of you, I'm thinking that, that God has blessed me to be a part with you and, and to see your desire for God and godliness and to see it to overflow into the next generation. In any case, the 
the call then here in this text of scripture, this, the faithful men who are going to teach the next generation, they're going to do so by suffering. Suffering is sacrifice, and that's what it's going to take. Not playing around with computer games, not engaging in all kinds of hobbies just to please yourself. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't take some time off. But ultimately, to be a man means to sacrifice. Here, three analogies are given of what it might look like. And the first one, it says to be a soldier. To be a soldier demonstrates the, the loyalty and the faithfulness and doing the, the obedience of, that, of those that are in authority over you. And here, our captain is Jesus Christ. And to call is then to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ and not to be entangled in civilian pursuits, to recognize who your leader is. It is Christ, the one who has enlisted you, that has called you to his service. The second analogy is that of an athlete, and the imagery there, an athlete, oh, it's glorious to see them achieve many great things, but it is through blood, sweat, and tears. It is a lot of discipline in their own personal life every day engaging in that and preparing for those events in their life in which the glory is seen. But most of the life is not that glorious. It is a life of preparation. And then finally, this hardworking farmer, which our culture knows very little about. Ken here knows a lot about it. We talked about it. Even with the great machinery that we have today, providing they don't outprice diesel fuel, but I digress, uh, with this great machinery that, that he has, he's able to accomplish much on a, on a farm. But it is very hard work. It's very hot. It's very cold. It's very difficult. It's very long. And you can get this imagery here of what it calls to be a man in our day. So as the hymn writer wrote, rise up, O men of God. And not only for your sacrifice, your service, your faithfulness, your, Lord, you recognize you're leading the next generation. And I pray that many will rise up and be men of God here. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I do pray for these faithful men that have gathered around in our assembly. I'm thankful for each one and their contributions that they have given when they examine themselves, I'm sure that they feel that they don't measure up to the perfection that is Jesus Christ, the one to whom we look. And yet you have worked in a marvelous way in each one of their lives, that Christ has been evident, that you have overcome our own flesh, and some of the grace and glory of Christ has been displayed in their lives. I pray that your blessings would be upon them. I'm thankful for their sacrifice of their life in their commitment to be a man of God. I pray that you will encourage them and help them and equip them to do so, not only just for themselves, but certainly to lead the next generation to do the same, to commit to young men who will grow up to be faithful men, who will learn to lead who will learn to protect and learn to provide, not only in this 
church environment in which we live, not only in their own homes as they demonstrate that, but I pray that blessing would overflow in our country. I pray that the, the evil and the wickedness that is so rampant among us, I pray it would be overcome by the light of the glory of your grace. May the darkness be dispelled, the light of Christ shine forth, and may it certainly shine within your people. As we gather together, may we encourage one another, even more so as we see the day approaching. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you. You can remain seated for this one. Let's take out our inserts, and uh, if you didn't grab one on the way in, there's some in the back. If you're watching from home and have a Hymns of Grace hymn book, it's number 112 in that hymn. It's the, the, the name of the hymn is Complete in Thee, beautiful words about total submission to the Lord and resting in his grace and in his sovereignty. So let's take our insert out and we'll sing all four verses of Complete in Thee.
morning, church. Today we'll be reading from Psalms 116, which can be found in your Pew Bible on page 510. It's not known who wrote Psalm 116. Some commentators say that David did, but others feel it was written much later. Although the psalm seems straightforward, there's nevertheless disagreement as to its meaning as well. Adam Clark, for example, said that many think it wholly relates to the passion, death, and triumph of Christ. Most of the fathers were of this opinion. On the other hand, Robert Bellarmine said, with the Holy Fathers, Basil, Chrysostom, Jerome, and Augustine, we judge this psalm as to be understood of the spiritual man, earnestly desiring eternal life and groaning on account of temptations and dangers. John MacArthur, I think, presents a better view when he says, this is an intensely personal thank you psalm to the Lord for saving the psalmist from death, verses three and eight. While this appears to deal with physical death, the same song could be sung by those who have been saved from spiritual death. So let us now hear the word of the Lord. I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me, the pangs of Sheol lay hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray thee, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You've loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the Bible. Uh, David Gunderson says of it, this small but mighty psalm calls the Gentile nations to praise Israel's covenant God precisely because he is faithful to Israel. God promised Abraham that his offspring would bless the nations, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. So God's faithfulness to Israel meant blessing for the world. This promise comes to fruition through Christ, the true descendant of Abraham, as he absorbs the law's curse and pours his spirit on all who believe. 
Now we can say from this, because God's love extends to the world, we should be interested in world missions, which is why we'll shortly be having missions in July. This psalm serves, among other things, to remind us then to support and pray for world missions. And I, I might say that Adam Clark and Robert Bellarmine are commentators I would not recommend to you. Uh, Clark was a 19th century Methodist and Bellarmine a 16th century Roman Catholic. I mentioned them just to contrast them with what John MacArthur was saying. Uh, David Gunderson is, on the other hand, someone I would recommend as he writes further things. He's a rather young man right now. But he went to Master's College and Seminary and then got a doctorate at Southern Baptist Seminary under Albert Moeller. And what I was quoting from was the NIV Grace and Truth Study Bible, which just came out last year, edited by Albert Moeller, in which David Gunderson did that note on Psalm 117. It happens that I know his father, who was the person who told me about a Reformed Baptist church in northern New Jersey with a great preacher, which I ended up joining and where I subsequently met Janet. Okay, let us again reverently listen to God's holy word. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now let us look to the Lord in prayer. Grant, Almighty God, that as you have until now shown to us so many favors, since the time you've been pleased to adopt us as your people, O grant that we may not forget so great a kindness, nor be led away by the allurements of Satan, nor seek for ourselves inventions which may at length turn to our ruin, but that we may continue fixed in our obedience to you and daily call on you and drink of the fullness of your bounty and at the same time strive to serve you from the heart and to glorify your name and thus to prove that we are wholly devoted to you according to the great obligations under which you've laid us when it has pleased you to adopt us in your only begotten son. We thank you for the privilege of meeting here. Thank you also that you've blessed us in so many ways, both materially and spiritually. We thank you that our nation is at peace and we'd pray for those in Ukraine suffering from the ravages of war, that they might soon see that come to a just end. Draw near to us now then, meet with, meet with us and be glorified in our midst as we pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus, amen.
once more and take our hymn books and turn to number 83, and we'll sing, Be Thou My Vision. I have set the Lord always before me, Psalm 16, 8. 
a greater thought about Christ. And that is one of the things that we attempt to do in looking at his word. And I invite you to turn to see the excellency of Jesus as the preacher of Hebrews gives us this word of exhortation as he calls it in 1322. He also says it's briefly written. It's a, it's a as I've argued, an oral sermon that has been written down and maybe we just have the notes here. I'm sure they went a lot longer. I have a hard time preaching through this in, because there is so much here. It, it, it's hard to, to leave some of it on the quote-unquote cutting table of my office. And then when I'm getting here, I have a tendency just to go off on a few things, and before I know it, the time is gone. The precision of this presentation of Christ in his holy word is incredible. It's profound. It's really beyond our comprehension in that it points to that which is inexhaustible, and that is the glory of Jesus Christ. These briefly mentioned items here, as the author of Hebrews would say, causes us to want to stop and take a moment to think, to meditate, to pray, indeed, that our hearts would understand the significance of this profound truth. I'm reminded how Paul prayed for the church of Ephesus when he's preaching Christ and talking about the glory uh, that is in Christ Jesus in Ephesians chapter 3. This is his prayer as he says he's bowing his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. That's a major statement. That he would grant you that strength to hear about Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's talking about illumination, if you will. You can hear words, but it, it goes beyond that to really see the significance of it. There needs to be a spiritual dynamic to break through the hard heart that you have so that you would indeed be understand that Christ may may then dwell in your heart through faith and that you being rooted and then grounded in that love the love of God in Christ Jesus that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. What a great prayer. And that's the prayer I pray when I come to the Holy Word of God. I want to see the glory of Christ. I, I want to be not filled with information, if you will, but to be filled with the fullness of God. There's a distinct difference, and that is to understand a degree of the significance of this truth. He can do far more abundantly than we can ask or think, and that's great. And there are times in which that significance comes true in our very own hearts. 
and happens to me, I normally break down and weep to a certain degree, thinking about the glory that is in Christ Jesus. He has worked this work throughout all generations, forever and ever, Paul would say, amen. He is working that today, so keep that in mind as we look through this text, and I hope you don't stumble over it, but pray in your own heart as we read and explain that you would see the glory of Christ, that your joy in that would increase. Our focus this morning, I'm going to see if I can get to verse 4 as the transitional statement here, and then uh, 5 and 6 and a little bit of 7 in our text in chapter 1. This section begins in chapter 1 <coughs> with seven dogmatic statements concerning the nature and work of Jesus Christ. We've been through that. He's heir, creator, the radiance or brightness, if you will, of God. Instead, he's God himself, the exact imprint. He is sustainer. That is, he not only holds it together, he brings it forth. He is Savior and he is Lord. <clears throat> Those seven is how this letter begins. And then verse 4 is the transition to a biblical exposition, if you will, to demonstrate the validity of those proclamations, to demonstrate that Jesus is a superior being, even in his creaturely form, taking on the form of a man. He is of highest regard, and he's going to be held in highest regard. He'll begin by comparing to angels. Let's read it in its context, and I'll go ahead and read the entire chapter, although we're going to focus in the middle. Chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which to... For <coughs> to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son, and today I've begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of right uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels did he ever say, sit 
at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you will bless your holy word. May we hear and heed your truth today. May our thoughts of Christ be exalted for our good and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. <coughs> As I mentioned, this verse 4, which we'll begin to focus on, is this transition, if you will, between the seven dogmatic statements, and as you've noticed when I read, here are seven rhetorical questions that are really rooted in biblical proofs of the excellency of Jesus Christ. In verses 1 through 3, it begins by noting the prophets, which they would have thought a lot of, those hearing this for the first time, but there is a superior voice than the prophets. It is the Son. And the remainder of it here is then going to point, in this chapter anyway, point to this Jewish audience, beings that would have been considered of even higher order in some sense than the prophets. Higher order in that they are the highest of all God's creatures. A.W. Pink references some points rooted in Scripture to demonstrate <coughs> that thinking and ours today, the way we should certainly think of holy angels. Think about it, the high order of angels. Heaven is their native home, Matthew twenty four thirty six. They excel in strength, Psalm one hundred three twenty. They are said to be minist God's ministers, 104, 4 of the book of Psalms. And like a king's gentleman in waiting, they are to minister to the ancient of days. That's God the Father, Daniel 7.10. They are said to be holy, Matthew 25.31. That is without sin. Their countenance are like lightning and their raiment as white as snow. Do you remember the, the radiance imagery of God? Well, here their countenance similar in that way. Matthew 28, 3. They surround God's throne. Revelation 5, 11. They carry on every development of nature. And that's an interesting thing that God tasks them. This is part of this upholding. It, by the way, it would be Christ sending them forward, as we'll discover. But nevertheless, they're engaged in what? One of the things they're engaged in is in the development of nature. God doesn't, and Pink, I'm quoting Pink here, God doesn't move and rule the world merely by laws and principles, by unconscious and inanimate powers, but by living beings full of light and love. His angels are like flames of fire. They have charge over the winds and the earth and the trees and the sea. And if you want a reference for that, you can read the entire book of Revelation and see that unfold. So when the writer of Hebrews states that Jesus is superior than to angels, this would be a monumental statement in their mind, at least. You'll find in chapter 2, in verse 9, that humanity is lower 
than angels. And we'll unpack what that means in a bit. So here is the highest order, and yet Jesus is superior then to the highest order. Now, I want to note three things concerning his superiority, which at first glance, and by somebody that doesn't understand Scripture, hasn't seen it in its context, may make a great error. And a lot of bad theology has come from this very section, and I would argue it's just you don't hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches as part of the problem. You don't see it in its obvious context, but if you yank some of these ideas out of the context in which they're given, you may misunderstand. These three concepts I want to focus on is first one found in verse 4. It says, he has become, speaking of Jesus. Verse 5, he was begotten. And then verse 6, it says he is the firstborn. Each one of those are a focus on the glory of Christ. Some may think this speaks of an inferiority as the relationship between Jesus and the Father. Well, they've missed it totally. These are anything but that. What he's attempting to do in context here is what? Show the excellency and superiority of Jesus Christ. He's not attempting to show any kind of inferiority, any lesser than God himself. In, in verse 4, where it says our translations that we read, and most modern translations have, having become, if you read the King James, <coughs> it'll say being made, and you can see then what the issue might be. Some people think the word translated here, having become, ginomai, a participle to become, means, well, he, he, he wasn't something, and then he becomes something else. That's not the point of what's going on here at all, actually. Jesus has always been superior. He hammers out seven excellencies at the very beginning. He confirms his deity. He is creator. He is the very effulgence of God. He is the bearer of all things. So so he's not going to backstep here and then make a lesser statement on this having become. This having become is actually a, a, a statement of exaltation, and I hope to show you that in a moment. But I think groundwork to understand these concepts that are given here and really this whole first chapter and how it's put together, and it might help you in the rest of the book. It's helpful to distinguish between that which is the essential nature of Jesus Christ being God and his work, particularly as mediator, the the work that he accomplishes and does through the incarnation as God-man. That's what is going on here. When speaking of Jesus, the scripture, the writers of Scripture, they go seamlessly from one concept to another. And they don't confuse it by putting some artificial terms in there. They just go from one to the other. 
What is true about the person of Jesus Christ is essential nature, as it's already said. You are God, and it'll go on here in our text as we read, thy throne, O God. That's its essential nature. But it is equally true then to think of Christ in the work that he does as mediator and particularly then humbling himself and taking on the form of a servant. So, so here you have a sovereign servant. How could both be true? Both are equally true about Jesus Christ and can be referred to one or the other and neither confused and not giving up on one or the other. He would determine this simply by one of the principles we use is called the analogy of the faith. And that's that Scripture itself is harmonious. Since God spoke, he didn't speak one thing on one page and one thing in another. He didn't speak one thing in one sentence and another in another sentence something totally different. That would be inconsistent. That would be how politicians talk, not God. Scripture then interprets Scripture. Those texts that aren't clear to us or maybe cause us to question, they'll be remedied by those things that are clear. There may be multiple possible understandings of a particular text, but the author only had one meaning. And we have to go to that root. And that meaning would be consistent from the very beginning to the very end. This having become as much superior to angels, verse 4, is not a change in his nature, but really in status or relationship to mankind. This is not a change in his essential nature. This is talking about the accomplishment of his mediatorial work having become. There is a change. He, he accomplishes, and it becomes, if you will. Notice this phrase, having become. It, it follows verse 3. They have them numbered for us in our Bibles. This is verse 4. What went before? Verse 3. Do you see what it says about this one, Jesus Christ? After making purifications for sin, he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author has already said, I put this in brief form. What what he's saying is, here is Christ's atonement for sin on the death of the cross. And when he made atonement for sin, then what is he? He is exalted. That is how he becomes higher. He's talking about not his being, which has always been higher, his essential nature. This is talking about his, his work. This is an exaltation saying, you have accomplished your work of atonement. And so much so that you are at the right hand of God here in a mediatorial fashion. Even that, it's, which we'll get to maybe one day. He, he is working about this um, in his mediation, not just at a one point in time, but forever and ever and ever in that respect. Purification for sin has been accomplished by his obedience to the Father's will. How would you have him obey the Father, be submission to him if he is God himself? Because it's, it's just looking 
at him in his work and what he does. He always, he says, does the Father's will. He is subordinate and submissive in the fact that he is carrying out the decree of God. He is carrying out that order in which he died on the cross upon completion of this. The Father demonstrates he is accepted by raising him from the dead and then exalting him to the right hand, the seat and the hand of authority and majesty on high. In the incarnation, when Christ took on human flesh, he was made lower than the angels in his mediatorial work. Not in his not in his essential being. You understand, he's always God of God. He was always upholding all things by the word of his power, which is really hard for us to grasp, to think here a little baby in a cradle is holding the world and bringing that forth. That is always going on, but if you look at it from the perspective of his work in the incarnation, that's one thing. If you look at him from the perspective of his being and nature and who he is in God, that is something different. Look at 2.9. I'll, I'll go ahead and read. I alluded to it earlier. So you can understand how this transition works about having become something different. This is actually a quotation from Psalm 8, and we'll get into uh, this a greater depth later, but notice verse 9 in our text, Hebrews 2.9, a quotation from Psalm 8. But we see him, that's Jesus, who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. That, that's speaking of him in his earthly life, his flesh, taking on human flesh, that's Jesus. He was made for a little while, a time, lower crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that the, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So in what way is made lower? It's right there in the text, 2.9. You see it? He was made lower in the fact that he could now suffer. God doesn't suffer. Angels don't suffer. They're holy. In taking on the form of a servant, he is a sufferer. He is a man. The ultimate of suffering is death. And angels don't die. So that's the sense in which he's made lower, you see. He is subject now to suffering, and we know he does. He submits to that suffering, and ultimately he dies. The angels are said then to be, and in their mind, higher because they're not suffering and they're not tasting death. Jesus will. He will take on that form. So having become then, in verse Four, you understand this is the completion of that suffering, that atonement. A high priest for his people who will be raised then from the dead in a glorified body and then ascend to heaven. It is finished. It is accomplished. And 
and now this God-man will never suffer again, and he'll never die. Can I tell you this? If you're in Christ, that's where you'll be too. In a sense, you're lower than angels in created order because of suffering and death. For those that are in Christ, that will be removed. How do you know? Look to Christ. He was made lower, and then he became higher in that sense. Never to suffer and never to die. I tell you, that's, and really, I think I would say that's one and the same thing. You know, suffering, which the ultimate end of it is death, isn't it? Where it leads. Can you like to eliminate suffering? Pain, death, I hate it. I hate it in myself, and I hate it in others. It's very grievous, particularly if you've lost a loved one, or if you have a loved one that is suffering. It's really hard, isn't it? You want to eliminate it? Look to Christ. That is the answer to all of it. In Hebrews Chapter 7, if you want to flip over. Hebrews 7. Here it affirms, as he's going through this, this exalted position then of Christ looking at his mediatorial work as high priest. In 7.23, there's a comparison made to the order of priests to which the Jewish um, folks would have understood. He says, the farmer priests, I'm at 723, were many in number. Why were they many? Because they were prevented by death from continuing the office. That's the, the difference between that order and Christ. But he, verse 24, and that's the difference, he holds his priesthood permanently, and why? Do you need it? See it? He continues forever. So he's constantly able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. The only reason you are secure is because of Christ, who is the faithful high priest who will continue that office forever and ever. And when it looks to that, this is not a man in, in a uh, body that is suffering and that will die. This is a man who is glorified and lives forever. And he's always able to make intercession for you. Chapter 8 then gets to the point that he, he really begins at the beginning and he's driving through and then here's almost the climax of the point in chapter 8 and verse 1. The point that we're saying is this. This is where we're going. We have a high priest, one who is then seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Have you seen that from chapter 1, right? Make the connection. That is who this priest is. He is seated in the, th- in, in the right hand, in the seat of authority and power, the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. This having become, then, is a word of exaltation. It is a word that demonstrates the the accomplishment 
of the atonement. And now after this purification and the completion of it, he is on the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the perspective of his mediatorial work, not his essence, if you will, not his essential nature. This is the, the looking at what Christ did in his humiliation and his accomplishment and therefore his exaltation. I have another text that you may be familiar with that captures this thought and it might be helpful to make the connection since you hear the preaching of Hebrews, which I personally think it may have been Paul's preaching. But Philippians chapter 2, you can see the same theology at the very least. Apostolic theology, Philippians chapter 2, I'll read it for you in verse 5, where he calls each of us to take on a humble attitude because this is the attitude that is in Christ Jesus. His, humili his humility, his humiliation, is taking on the form of man. Verse 6, Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, <coughs> that is, his essence, he is God of gods, he didn't, he didn't um, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. That's the difference. He took on this form, being then born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. See how that fits? Same theology, just expressed a little differently. And what would be the result of that humiliation, taking on the form of servant, becoming a little lower than the angels? Well, in the... In the um, resurrection is the exaltation, having then become greater. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowing on him a name that is above every name. And by the way, that appointment and that bestowal comes about because of his accomplishment, because of his work. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess, what's the name? That Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So having become then, in Hebrews 1, 4, is acknowledgement of his work, the work of this God-man, and in so doing, then he has inherited a more excellent name than any other being in creation. This concept of inheritance in verse 4 of Hebrews 1 means the right. He has the right of an excellent name. The right comes about not only through his birthright as son begotten of God, which we'll talk about in a moment, verse 5, that is the essential nature of God and the union of a servant, but also through his obedience as a son. And that is the final thing which we hope to get to perhaps next week is this idea of firstborn, which again is not a lesser term. It speaks of his work, his mediatorial work as high priest. Let's look at this first one in verse 5. 
He says then, and moving on, gets this excellent name, Hebrews 1, 5. For which to the angels did he ever say, You're my son, today I have begotten you. This word for begotten and the fact that he says that you're my son is also a term of great exaltation. This is a quote from Psalm 2. You want to turn there, you can. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It looks to that one who would come, that Christ. And the question begins in Psalm 2, well, why do the nations rage? Why, Why do they plot in vain? Of course they do. Because the kings take counsel to themselves together, and ultimately they're against the Lord. They're against his anointed. His anointed is the Messiah. Okay? That's really the problem and that's going on in our crazed world. They're not submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord. They will, but they're not. And that's why you have so much confusion, so much chaos. Instead, they want to burst away their bonds and cast away their cords. In other words, don't tell me what to do with my life, with what I want to do. This is the the reaction of man in a sinful state. This is ultimately what is demonic about all of it. Just like Satan said, oh, I will rise up. I will do as I please. We, we have a culture in which we, we, we have respect, freedom, and we want to be independent and so forth and make choices. But all of those need to be in alignment with the sovereign God of the universe. And anything less will bring about great destruction. But this is the way sinful man naturally moves. In a, in a say, this is really what... Um, satanic is we think of it sometimes as the macabre or or some kind of weird stuff going on no it's real simple i i I will decide for myself i I will i will not look to the lord i will not submit to the lord i'm going to come up with my own counsel i'm going to burst away these these bonds that hold me well what's god's response to that well he laughs that's the imagery it's like a child you know They're going to have their way. Well, they're not strong enough and they're not smart enough. They're not going to have their way. He holds them in derision. The the Lord will then speak to them in his wrath. That is the righteous response to rebellion. And he will terrify them in his fury. He'll tell them, okay, fine, you want to do that? But I have set my king on uh, on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell the decree. This is within the decree of God from the very beginning. What is it? The Lord said to me, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. This is looking to the incarnation of Christ, decreed in the beginning, before time began, but implemented in time in a particular day that this will happen. Remember they, what they proclaimed, the angelic beings proclaimed in 
Luke chapter 2, verse 11. I'll read it for you. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is, who is Messiah, who is Lord. That, that's going back to the same promise here in Psalm 2 about this messianic king that will come. When he comes, there will be great judgment. That's what will happen ultimately. But now is a time of grace, granted, and a call to do this. In verse 12, if you're still there in Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry. It's a call to recognize Jesus Christ as Lord because every tongue and every tribe and every nation will, either in their own judgment or in the great joy of the salvation of Jesus Christ. Begotten of God, back to our concept in in Hebrews then, is really a term of deity. When, when he says this in Psalm 2, what he's saying is, this is my son, and I have begotten you to be gotten as the son. He's not talking about his essential nature again, right? He's talking about his work, his mediatorial work. How will he come by and accomplish it? Not like the prophets of old, not like the priests of old, and not like the kings of old. This is the prophet, the priest, and the king. This is my son, and today I have begotten you. It is begotten in his mediatorial work. That's what he's pointing to. The church understood that for a long time, and, of course, they did struggle a bit in, uh, and had many what we would call Christological arguments trying to hammer out the person and nature of Christ because it, it is complex to some degree. I mean, and the whole concept of God, three persons and one essence, it's, it's complicated. And then exactly how Jesus relates to that, and I said you have to look at it from one angle in his essential being as God of God's, and the other in his work, what he actually will accomplish due to the decree of God. Here's how it was um, hammered out in 325 A.D., which we would do well to listen to from the council at Nicaea. When it says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And here's the phrase, begotten from the Father before all ages. This is the decree of God. God, and, and who is this that is begotten? Don't miss it. This is God of gods. Light from light. True God from true God. Begotten, not made. In other words, he's not talking about his creation. This is talking about his work in his mediation. Of the same essence as the Father, and through him all things were made. The statement, then, my son, I've begotten you, is not said of angels, and that's what our writer in Hebrews says. Who is it said of? It's said of Jesus Christ. It's never said of angelic beings. Higher order that they might be in comparison, simply higher because they don't suffer and die, and yet God never said this is my son to 
an angel. There's a general sense in which angels can be considered sons of God, as are those who are regenerate in Christ, adopted as sons in him. But this expression here, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is spoken only of Jesus, and I would add it is a specific messianic title that, that looks to his superiority and deity when it says it. This is not a lesser statement about a lesser God. This is a glorious statement to say you are God of gods, light of light, true God, and you are the one who has been ordained to accomplish the work that you will do by taking on the form of a servant. Two passages, I'll read them for you. Well, I've got a lot to go. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. Two passages, though, I want you to hear that, that would affirm this statement in Hebrews when it says um, that he hasn't said this to angels. One would be from his baptism, and the other would be from Jesus' transfiguration. These are not throwaway events that are recorded in the Bible. These are very important. And, it, and, and note how all of this ties together. God has decreed this in the beginning, that you're my son. Stay, I've begotten you. The preacher in Hebrews appeals to that and says, that was never said of an angel. This is only said of the son. Baptism, I'll read it from you for the Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew three sixteen. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. It wasn't a dove, it it's just the imagery given there. This is the glory of God falling on him. And behold, then a voice from heaven. So here you have the triune God speaking. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here is the voice of heaven crying out, this is my son, begotten of God. In the transfiguration, later on in Matthew, they want to see the glory of Christ. He takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, you remember, in, John, in Matthew 17. And while Peter was still running his mouth, a bright cloud overshadowed them, verse 5. And then a voice, an audible voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. They, they were listening to and wanted to worship other voices and other approaches. But no, here it is said specifically of the Son. This was never said of anyone else, let alone angels. It is a significant statement. This is the, the My Son, capital M, Son. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Of course they were. Here is the glory of God coming down and then affirming the sonship 
of Christ, his, notice, beloved son. In both texts, in Matthew 3 and Matthew 17, it also says, Beloved, this my son begotten by God is a term also of endearment and can be expressed as the beloved one. That, that is a, a link which exists. It is Jesus' human nature then that is, is said to be begotten by God. And that one is then his beloved son. Why are we making such a big deal that it is begotten of God? And uh, hopefully you can see why this is an expression of great deity, expression that was never made of anyone else. but, But why would this need to be? Here I invite you to, um, well, let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We read some of this in our reading, and I want to refresh your memory. Here the angel is talking to Mary. He says, don't be afraid, verse 30, Luke 1, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This will be his earthly name, Jesus, means Savior. He will be great, and he will be called, notice the title, Son of the Most High. This is what it means to be my son, begotten of God. It's used in the same type of language. Who will this Jesus be? He will be the Son of God the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God then will give to him the throne of his father David. This is a messianic promise of Christ, the Messiah. And he will then reign over the house of Jacob, how long? Forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Why? Because he lives forever. He is exalted to the majesty on high and will live forever forever and reign forever looking again at his mediatorial work as a kingly priest so mary has a question verse 34 well how is this going to be since i'm a virgin answer verse 35 the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high, that is God, will overshadow you. and Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Son of God. These are not throwaway titles. You see that? It's capitalized in our translation, and that's good. He will be then the Son of God. Why? Because God the Father has begotten him. He's pointing to, yes, decreed in eternity past, but realized here now in time that God would indeed be his father in the mediatorial sense. Which the angels, did God ever said, you're going to be my son? Today I have begotten you? Answer, none. Only Christ. Why is this done? Well, this will circumvent the sin of Adam 
The sin of the father passes down from one generation to the next. Here you will have a seed of a woman said to be a virgin. So how will she bring forth a child? Because God will be his father. Again, another emphasis to, of the fact that indeed he is the righteous one. He is one without a sin nature. He is one, however, taking on this human form because God is his father, not Adam. He will not have sin. The only man that would not have sin in that line since Adam fell because God is his father. And he will function in this mediatorial sense and he will be his son. Verse 5, back in Hebrews, it says, You're my son, today I have begotten you. And then it goes on an almost kind of a throwaway statement in verse 5. It says, or again, I will be to him a father and he to me a son. It just says that he has begotten him. And then he says, I'm going to be a father, and he's going to be to me a son. What, what is he talking about there? This comes from 2 Samuel seven fourteen, in which Nathan prophesies this very word to David, which is immediately filled in some aspects, but not fully filled it will fully be filled in its perfection in jesus christ who will be son i'll finish with this if you wish to turn there second samuel 7 12 is what he's quoting and for through verse 14 second samuel 7 12 when your days are fulfilled you will lie down with your fathers he's speaking of david nathan is I will raise up your offspring after you who will actually come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. That is the kingdom of Christ. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And here's the phrase, verse 14. I will be to him a father and he to me a son. That's the relationship that's talked about. That's what the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing, that ultimately God is his father, and he will be his son. Now, this, this next phrase does, does confuse some people, so I'll go ahead and, and try to quickly explain it. When It says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of sons of men. It would be better understood if you put if instead of when. When does fit all of those that would be sons of David in that physical lineage. But there is one son of David who does not commit sin. And why doesn't he commit sin? Because God is his father. This is a promise made not to angels. Angelic beings will not have this intimate relationship as father and son. 
And beloved, if you are in Christ, you say, well, how does this apply to me? Because if you're in Christ, that's the relationship that you will have with God, which is far superior than angels. Not because of your accomplishment, but because of Christ and what he has done. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed for all of those disciples in that upper room as well as those who would believe, that would be you, because of their word. And his prayer in that upper room was this, that they may be perfectly one just as we are. He isn't talking about that we should all just get along. He's talking about the fact that we would have a unique relationship with God that is personal like a father is to a son. An intimate, personal bond. And that is brought about because of the only begotten who is the beloved son. And if you are in Christ... This will be made known. Jesus prayed this. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. The world doesn't know, but I have made that known. And I will continue to make that known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This intimate relationship between God and man only comes about through one, Jesus Christ. No wonder the scripture says there's one mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, I do thank you for sending your son, taking on the form of a servant, obedient, in suffering, obedient even unto death. And you have highly exalted him and received all that he has accomplished. And it's with great, great joy we praise you, O Holy Father, for accepting us not because of anything we could possibly do, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that we can cry out even today, Abba, Father, I pray for anyone who doesn't truly know you as Father through Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son. I pray that you would make it known to them today. I pray for those of us who do have a glimpse of your glory that we would see it even brighter this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, let me give you a moment to think and respond to what God has spoken to you today.
Oh, Father, I do pray that our hearts would increase in worship of that one that is at the right hand of the Father. And thank you for the mediatorial work that Christ has accomplished. May we worship him now and forever. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to 454 in our hymnals. My faith has found a resting place, 454. I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence does my help come. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Father, we're indeed thankful for these promises you've given us. We pray that you'd bless us now as we go our ways. In Jesus' name, amen.
you're playing this 